in chapter 5 of 1 Peter, the sage of an apostle launches into the need for great leadership in the local church. I'm going to have the passage put up here in New American Standard. I'm going to read it for us as we uh, jump into Scripture. Therefore, I exhort the elders, Peter says, among you, as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, and a partaker also of the glory that is to be revealed. Shepherd, that key commandment, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily, according, literally according to God, and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness, nor yet as lording or dominating it over those allotted to your charge, but proving yourselves to be examples of the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, our Savior, the Lord Jesus, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. When Peter writes this, there are two things to keep in mind. Number one, keep in mind the context of suffering, for it was happening big time. In order to make this a little more relevant, I want you to picture in your mind that uh, maybe you didn't make it out of Afghanistan when you needed to as a Christian, and you're enduring persecution. In fact, one of the things that you're finding is that those Taliban, those who are totalitarian and will take your life in a heartbeat, if you're not a follower of Islam. They will take your life. They will persecute. They will prosecute. They'll do everything to remove you entirely from this planet. If you've got a version on your phone, meaning you've got the scriptures on that cell, they'll look at it as they sweep the neighborhoods. And if that's on your phone, you're done. Rounding up 100 people and killing them all at once. That's what is happening present tense in Afghanistan, and has happened as we've observed it. This is real persecution. Peter is writing in that kind of context. I want you to see this in, uh, just for a moment in chapter 1, verses 6 and 7, right after the salutation, right after the beginning. In this you greatly rejoice, all that God's done for you, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been distressed by various trials, that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire. That's not just a metaphorical use of fire. It's actually happening. They're getting burned. It may be found as a result to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Now turn over to chapter 4. In chapter 4, you see the same context of suffering. Throughout this book, you see it. Look at verse 12. Beloved, as Christians, do not be surprised at the fiery. There it is again. Real stuff, real temperature, real flames. Do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing, as though some strange thing was happening to you. But to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Kind of reminds you of the Apostle Paul in Philippians 3, that autobiographical section, that I might be conformed to his death, experiencing the same sufferings of my Savior. So there's a great thing about identifying with a Savior, even when you think it's the worst, it could be the best so that also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice 
when he comes again with exultation. It's the context of suffering. This guy by the name of Nero was considered to be a god. He, people considered him to be deity. And you had to bow down before him and take these vows and burn incense to him. And if you did not, if you only bowed the heart and the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ, that was it for you. You could be cast to the lions. You could be crucified if you weren't an actual Roman citizen. All sorts of things could happen to you. Peter wrote this epistle at about 63 AD. Within four years, he was crucified upside down. Nero did these things. You know, he was the guy that was uh, responsible in those 14 years of his reign for doing a little invention called the Roman candle. He would tie Christians who would not bow down and call him God to a stake in his vast gardens. Then he would pour pitch on them and light them on fire. Look at our wonderful luminaries, said Nero. This was the context of suffering that in which these Christians were living, like Afghanistan believers today. There was just a nation. I mean, there in Afghanistan, just a nation. But for Rome, it was the entire world if you bowed the heart and needed Jesus Christ. A context of suffering, to be sure. But there's another reason that Peter's writing this for the need of good leaders in the local church as well as the universal body of Christ. It's the condition of sheep. You know, we're called the flock of God. And uh, it's really not so much a complimentary statement. For example, did you know that sheep are defenseless? Did you know that sheep don't have teeth that are jagged and sharp like fangs at all? They can barely crunch up that grass. Did you know that they're really slow? You've never seen a sheep run and win a race. I mean, they are really balls of fur that are kind of fat and real slow. That's sheep, defenseless creatures. When uh, wolves attack, they do one of two things. They either freeze up or they flee, and flee not so fast. So they're very much the victim. They're caught so quickly. There's another characteristic about sheep that's kind of interesting. They're directionless. Sheep need a shepherd to lead and to guide them. And uh, oftentimes the, uh, the shepherd would lead them to a good pasture. If he left them and they wandered off and roamed a bit, it was to their destruction because they would lose a sense of sort of the GS, you know, GPS uh, coordinates in their mind. They, they would get all disoriented and not know where they were. And so uh, they, they just need leadership and direction. They need good shepherds. They're also very undiscerning, thirdly. Incredibly undiscerning about what to eat. Kind of like me before a really heated athletic contest I'm watching on television. <laughs> They're so undiscerning, they just forage. They go out there and they'll eat a whole pasture. And they'll gorge themselves oftentimes through their own sickness, and ruin the pasture which was to be used over and over again. That's the way sheep are. 
another one that's kind of gross is that they're dirty. They're just plain dirty. They uh, have this oil called lanolin. And from my experience with sheep, actually, if you reach into that woolly fleece, your hand will come out dripping with about 50 viscosity white lanolin. Incredible. So what does oil do? Well, it attracts dirt and debris. And so sheep, unless they're constantly cared for and sheared and cleaned, sheep can really get filthy. In fact, they can get so clogged up that if that wool is not taken away, if it's not sheared underneath their tail, they things will really get clogged up. And then they'll really get sick and even diseased. That's sheep. You know, sheep uh, also, if, uh, if they are kind of left to try to clean themselves and they see that Sea of Galilee, well, if they get in that thing, they've really got to be careful. Because, you know, that water just loves that wool. And that water just, just grabs hold of that sheep, takes it into deeper water, and they can drown so easily, thinking that they're just wandering aimlessly, and all of a sudden they're gone. The last one I saved is my favorite. Uh, sheep really have a difficult time because they're so determined to follow. And oftentimes those in front of them are not necessarily the best to follow. When I was in middle school, about the seventh grade, I would go out to a ranch outside of Austin and uh, with Bob Atkinson and uh, Ricky Eldred. And we would uh, ride horses and we would mess with the sheep. And uh, Bob loved to do this and how can a seventh grader not love to uh, do what I'm gonna tell you? Bob said, let's get about a 30, 30 of those woolly bullies and let's, let's get them in the corral. And then uh, Ricky, you get in there with them. Let's say, I want you out here and uh, I want you to hold this broomstick. And what I'm going to do, said Bob, is I'm going to open the gate just a little bit so there's just a little bit of room for them to jump, I mean, jump over the broomstick when you hold it out. Okay, you got that now? And we all said, yeah, we got it. So uh, when he opens the gate, I'm going to hold the broomstick for them to jump over. Okay, so Ricky starts, he yells at him, go Rick! And man, he starts yelling. And it just scares the sheep. And so they start running out full blast. And they just start jumping over the broomstick that I'm holding dutifully. And it's a great thing to see. Man, perfect. And then all of a sudden Atkinson said, hey, pull back the broomstick. I pull back the broomstick. And to my amazement, the sheep keep jumping. They just keep jumping one after another. And I can't take that as a seventh grader, man. I'm rolling in the dirt crying. I'm laughing so hard. All of us are. I can't tell you how many times we did that. <laughs> We're the flock of God. <laughs> oh, Lord, could you have picked another word to describe us? Flock of God. The condition of sheep. The context of suffering. You see, we need 
good leaders. So in this passage, we're going to look uh, at uh, specifically three things that you'll see up here on the, on the screen. We're going to look first of all at who are the leaders? Who are the leaders that Peter describes? Secondly, we're going to look at what should characterize them. What kind of qualities, what kind of attitudes should they possess that really makes them great leaders? And then thirdly, how will God reward them? So let's jump in in 1 Peter chapter 5 and see this. In chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 5, verse 1, uh, who are the leaders? It's interesting that in verse 1, in your English version, it says, Therefore I exhort, I exhort the elders among you. But Peter doesn't really begin that way in the original language in the Greek in which this was written. He just immediately goes, presbuteros, plural, for prosbuteros. He just comes right out and just exclaims with the priority of position in the language to whom he is speaking. Elders, I want your attention. First word in this sentence. Elders. Well, elders is a common word. But actually, there are three kinds of leaders. A couple of them have the name elder. And I want you to know that you will be familiar with them rather easily when you hear the words stated in Greek. The first one is prosbuteros. What, what, what denomination kind of sounds like that? Presbyterian. And how about the second word, episkopos? What word, what uh, denomination does that seem to suggest? Episcopalian. So you have denominations of Protestantism deriving a name from the word to the words for elder, prosbuteros and episcopos. Episcopos is easiest to remember simply because it's it's a scopos uh, to see, and epi over to oversee these flock, these sheep within that flock. And prosbuteros is uh, used that way. And uh, another way kind of to pull in uh, some leadership qualities as well. But basically what I want to say is they're used interchangeably in the New Testament. There's another word you have to include. And that is basically what they are told to do by way of function. It says this in verse 2. Shepherd the flock of God. That word poimino in the Greek, is actually used exactly for the word in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 11, with four spiritual gifts mentioned, pastor. So basically, you have three church leaders all stated in verses 1 and 2. Elder, elder, pastor. And they're all told, you're to shepherd the flock of God. To see this uh, throughout the scriptures, just a couple of references. Look at Titus chapter 1 with me. Titus chapter 1, verse 5. In Titus chapter 1, verse 5, for this reason, Paul the apostle, now not Peter, but Paul, as they use these words, uh, is going to set in order on the island of Crete the churches that have been founded. And he wants them grounded. He wants them stable. So he's going to say to them that I left you in Crete, Titus, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders, presbyteros, in every city as I directed you. Now look at verse 7. For the overseer, episcopos, episcopos, 
must be above reproach. See how those words are used interchangeably? Elder, elder, prosbuteros, episcopos. I like this one. This is my favorite. In Acts chapter 20, boy, Paul couldn't be more transparent about how he loves the growing of churches like South Spring, to whom he ministered the flock of God. And he's very careful about them, thinking with these elders that he invites from Ephesus to Miletus, I'm not going to see you guys again. So from a transparent and a warm heart, I want to encourage you to do a couple things. Look at it. In Acts chapter 20, verse 17. From Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders, the presbyteros of the church. And then in verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, episcopos, to shepherd, poimeno, the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in to, to attack the sheep who flee or or, or, or flee, who, who freeze or flee. They'll come in and they won't spare the flock. So the three words are used. In Titus 1, in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, and also in Acts chapter 20, verses 17 and 28. Very interchangeable. That's what I want you to see. He's exhorting them to shepherd the flock well. We are in desperate need, especially in the context of suffering, for people who are examples that will go before us. Picture again residents in Afghanistan as a believer. How are you going to respond? How are people ahead of me, my leaders, my shepherds, responding under shepherds to the chief shepherd, Jesus Christ? I've got, so, I've got to follow somebody. Sheep, the flock of God, need right people to follow at all times. Thus, the mention of these. Now, what are the characteristics? What are the characteristics? What, should, uh, what kind of attitudes should they have? Right here in the passage. Again, back to 1 Peter chapter 5. The first one is humility. Peter was a transformed individual. Not so humble at the start, was he? Remember the teaching that Chris gave us so well? Peter was a guy that uh, kind of was an alpha male. And uh, Peter was a guy that would say, hey, you know, Lord, I, I, you don't have to go along with what I say, but I think you're wrong about the direction you're taking. <laughs> what? The cross is wrong and you have the right... He said, get behind me, Satan, because you're only thinking about what is your comfort zone, not about what God has in, in store at Calvary. Oh, Peter, get behind me. And remember Peter bragging about, hey, if there's someone here, I mean, look at us, Lord. Take your pick, but you're going to end up on me because I'm going to have impeccable loyalty. I mean, if there's someone you can depend on, <laughs> his little smile as an apostle, immature as he was, it's me. And he betrayed him three times. Peter became a humble guy. 30 years of the Spirit of God transforming him internally. So much so that as we learned in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7, it was Peter who said, hey guys, I've learned some pretty important stuff. Fellas, let me in here. 
live with your wives in an understanding way as with a weaker vessel since she is a woman. She's not as strong as you. Don't use your physical strength against her. And by the way, find out what it really is like. What are her longings in life? Live with her in an understanding way. And then you know what I want you guys to do too that I had to learn the hard way? Grant her honor as a fellow heir of the grace of life. And you know why, Peter? Because if you don't do these two things, you're not going to have a fruitful ministry. You're not going to have a prayer life. You can just kiss a goodbye, throw it in the garbage. If you aren't going to give me, give honor to your wife, you'll have no ministry whatsoever. He concludes, so that your prayers may not be hindered. Peter was a transformed guy. He was humble. You know what he didn't say? I like to recount it. Hey, fellas, do you remember? I've come a long way. And do you remember that I used to be the chief representative of the disciples? Just thought I'd throw that out there. And fellas, do you remember I was on the inner security council with James and John? In fact, I was one of those three guys that got invited to the mountain, you remember, Transfiguration. And we kind of fellowshiped with Elijah and Moses. Now I don't want to drop any names, but it happened. And you know the, another interesting thing? He never refers to himself as an apostle in this verse. I exhort the elders among you as your sum prosperos in the Greek, alongside fellow with elder. Doesn't say anything about his apostleship. And you know what else he calls the flock of God? He doesn't say my church, my flock. He said the flock of God. Things have happened in his life. That's humility. It's not about him. Man, I see Craig over here. What a great job you did in 1 Peter 3, 7. You know what? Every time I go to the HQ, every time Pine Cove headquarters down Kinsey, go in there, say a lot of you know, people whom I get to work with joy. Man, I tell you, Craig's my boss, by the way. I love it. You know what? You go down that hallway, and you see this big sign. It's not about you. Peter got that. And I'm still in process. And I love seeing that sign. Humility is a characteristic we desperately are in need of if we're going to lead the flock of God. That's an attitude that I've got to have. It's not about me. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 25 to 28, it's not that way out in the world. That's what Jesus says. Among the Gentiles, man, they know one thing, authority, power, position. Those three things, they know, they exercise them. But it's not that way among you. The greatest among you shall be your servant. That's what he wants us to be. I love Isaiah 66 too. I will forever wonder until I get to heaven when I get to talk to Petros himself, the rock. Did you ever meditate on Isaiah 66 too, Peter? As a, as a good Jew? Maybe he did. For Isaiah says, but to this one I will look. To him who is humble and contrite of heart and who trembles at my word. Oh. Humility. That's the attitude we need in our leaders at South Spring in the body of Jesus Christ. Humility. The second is Willingness. The second is willingness. In verse 2, shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, 
Did you notice these words in verse 1, by the way? Elder, elder, verse 2, shepherd, poimino, and, and number 3, exercising oversight. you see those three again? They're all right there. Shepherd the flock of God among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but voluntarily. That's the willingness we're talking about. Let me uh, kind of share something amusing that kind of goes from the negative side. Uh, there's this guy that uh, was sound asleep, and his mother raps on the door, bursts in, says, get up, get up, you got to wake up, hurry. And from his pillow, some muffled questions come, you know, like, why? Why do I have to get up now? What's such a big deal? She said, it's Sunday. It's Sunday, and Christians go to church on Sunday. Secondly, it's 40 minutes till the start of the service. You haven't even taken a shower. And thirdly, you're the pastor. You need to be there. Compulsory right? Forced into action rather than a willingness and a want to, not just an ought to. You see, that's what we need in our shepherds, a willingness, a willingness to be involved, to serve. And then thirdly, eagerness, eagerness. In verse two, according to literally, just according to God, or we've made it a little uh, more palatable, according to the will of God and not for sordid gain, but with eagerness. Sorted is an interesting word. It really has the connotation of the motivation of greed. That's what's coming across here. Almost like the false prophets who would want to fleece the flock rather than feed the flock with truth. They would want to get rather than to give. And so no ulterior motive of greed should be present at all. It shouldn't be about what they can get, but rather, as I said, what they can give. And that should characterize the church. Sometimes the church leaders, sometimes we can have a wrong focus. And uh, we can think of what the flock can do for us rather than what we can do for the flock of God. Uh, it's a while ago that I was a lead pastor for those 25 years. And, uh, but I can remember this one particular fellow that, that came to church. His name was Lou. I think it's far enough away that he probably won't hear this message and remember this. But Lou was a guy that uh, would come and, and every time he would show up, he would have this big old name tag with his realty company on it and his name. And I thought to myself, hmm, that kind of flies in the face of, of uh, you know, the, the fellowship and what we're here for. It shouldn't be about you creating a clientele or a network buying and selling homes. You shouldn't be using this to your advantage. It should be about worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ. Not what you can just get, but what you can give to one who gave you life, who demonstrated his own love toward us while you were yet sinners. Christ died for us. That's what it's about. And that's the koinonia that stimulates, that actually causes us to jump into action when we feel that kind of unconditional love. We want to be a part of it, not just take advantage of it on a horizontal level. Like, hey, I got to, uh, you know, I'll, I'll work with you on the commission. Not the greed, that's sordid gain. And so it should be just an eagerness to be a part. So you have humility, you have a willingness, and you have an eagerness that should be people in leadership. And they serve, therefore, as examples 
Verse 3, proving to be examples to the flock. That's what we need. Remember those two reasons? When the temperature goes up and the heat is hard to bear, context of suffering, and we're sheep. Context and condition of the sheep. And so for these reasons, we, these attitudes should characterize our leadership. Now, how will God reward them? How will God reward the leaders that serve in that capacity? And thinking more specifically, how will God reward you when you serve in, as under-shepherds, like on staff here at South Spring, et cetera, the leadership board? How will God reward you? Boy, do I have a word from God. Oh, look at this. Verse 4. And when the chief shepherd, also referred to as the good shepherd in John 10, 11 and 14, also referred to the great shepherd in Hebrews 13, 20. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. There are two crowns in the New Testament, folks. One is a word that, with which you're very familiar, diadem. It's diadema in the Greek. And the other one is stephanos. Diadema, diadem is the crown that only authority, royalty wears. It's only used three times in the New Testament. So much in Revelation 19 when his glory is revealed. Diadema, multiple. The other word, Stephanos, is the crown of victory. And actually, there's only one time that Jesus dons a crown of victory. And that's when they put together that crown of thorns and he went to the cross for us. And he won! He won us that freedom and that victory in him. He forgave us redeemed us, atoned for all of our wrong. That's the crown of victory that is given to you and me, the crown of glory in verse 4, the Stephanos. I love the term, the crown of victory. That's why we named our third son Stephen with a PH right from that word, Stephanos. And that is going to be given, I think, at the Bema, in 1 Corinthians 3, 11 to 15, that Bema is the judgment seat of Christ. You see, when he comes for us, it happens so quickly, we can't, the, the, the smallest infinitesimal period of time used of Adam, a Tomas is used to declare four one-hundredths of a second in which we're taken to be with him in the clouds. And at that judgment seat that occurs when we're in heaven, there will only be rewards or the loss of rewards. No judgment in the sense of losing salvation. And we're there, and he'll reward us. And guess who especially he will reward? Your under-shepherds in this body and the body across the generations, the universal body of Christ, who have been faithful, who have been humble, who have been willing to serve and eager to serve. And they will receive that crown of glory. I think there are two times when Christ comes. I think in chapter 4, verse 13, at the revelation of his glory, I think that is the second coming. But I think this glory is spoken of in terms of what 
emanates from the actual reward of the Stephanos worn by these wonderful shepherds. And would you like to see who they are? Let me show you. Here are your uh, shepherds, under shepherds like Chris in the body here at South Spring. I want you to see them because they're unheralded. They're not honored so much. You probably haven't seen a collective picture of them, and, uh, but here they are. And these are the ones, although not honored as much on earth, will be greatly honored at the bame of the judgment seat of Christ with these Stephanoi. All right, Ben Roach, Jeff Legg, look at Bobby Hicks up there, Chantel Lodgeno. Jason Wallace. I have gotten to work with some of these people. They're unbelievable. Behind the scenes, I have never seen such willingness and eagerness to serve. Ken Lackner and Bob Axworthy. There they are. Now, they get together as well with the uh, cadre. Cadre people like Chris and Paul McKenzie and Redfern and, and Lance and Rebecca and some of these people, they, they get together at least every two weeks. And you know, you don't know that, but they are your representatives as under shepherds caring for the flock of God at South Spring. And it's a beautiful combination. Listen, don't worry about the titles, folks. Look at their attitudes in their hearts because they got it. They got it. They're not perfect but they're serving with willingness, with eagerness, and with humility. It's tremendous what's going on here. I want you to know. So what is, what is so necessary to be present? The heart of a shepherd. What needs to be let go? Pride, pride of position. And these people are right there. So as we close, I just want to pray and ask God to continue to use them that you might grow in respect to your salvation. Said Peter, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus, 2 Peter 3.18. And who helps us do that? These under shepherds all over South Spring. On staff, those who are working with um, the life groups, and also, of course, these on the leadership board. Would you bow your hearts with me? Father, we want to thank you for incredible shepherds, under shepherds, beneath the chief, good, great shepherd himself. And we want to thank you, Father, that it's not just an ought to, it's a want to. We want to thank you for men and women who want to show you how much they love you by showing us how to grow and to be loved unconditionally, how we need that knowing our condition as sheep. So we thank you for them. And we're going to ask you for one more thing, Lord. Not only will you protect and continue to use them mightily in this body, as so many of them teach and administrate and care and lead and feed and protect us, but we pray that you would raise up at South Spring from our homes, from our ministries, people, boys and girls, young kids, who are taught how to willingly be eager with their humility to serve the Lord Jesus in a body of Christ like South Spring. We pray that with thanksgiving in Jesus' name. Amen.